You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Well, we pick up where we left off the last time. We're talking about the questioning that is going on here of John the Baptist. And we're struck, as we're meant to be, by the firm denial of the Messiahship. He has nothing to do with it. And it has delicately hinted, at least the Gospel writer has delicately hinted, that though he is not the Messiah, someone right around here is and uh, a very subtle reference to Jesus. We'll see we're being prepared for that because very, very shortly there'll be a quite forthright identification of Jesus as the Messiah. But that's the stage that we're at now. Well, the next thing we have to address is this. You see, these people who are interrogating John are not satisfied to ask him, are you the Messiah, and getting a denial from him, dropping the matter. They pursue it, and pursue it in rather a strange way. They're speaking about Elijah and the prophet. Now, why should that be? Well, the reason is this, that in the Judaism of that time, the expectation was for the one who is to come, some figure who would come from God to bring on the day of the Lord. Different people in different parts of the country, Israel, envisioned that one who was to come in a different way. So, for instance, some people visualized this one who was to come as a royal figure, a messiah. Messiah means anointed one, and kings were anointed. So that was the way they fleshed out that expectation that a kingly figure would come, a messiah, an anointed one. Other people were thinking in terms of Elijah, of all things. I'll explain in a moment why. In other words, the one who is to come would be Elijah. He would usher in the day of the Lord. And lastly, there were some who thought that the one who is to come would be someone broadly spoken of by Moses as a prophet like unto me. I'll read the text in a moment. So that's the state of affairs then, that everybody was agreed on this, that someone was coming from God and mandated by God to come to bring things to a head, so to speak, to bring on the day of the Lord. But the way different people pictured this person who was to come varied geographically, as it may have been the case. But this much could be said, that most of the people pictured the one who was to come as Messiah. But you see, these interrogators here want to cover every base. And when they hear John deny that he is the Messiah, They may have been thinking, oh, he's being cute here. He's saying he's not the Messiah, but he's Elijah. So they press the matter that far. Are you Elijah? And still not satisfied, they want to be sure that they've 
cover the situation completely and they ask if he is the one who is to come. So that explains this variation that we have here. But let's dig deeper into this matter of Elijah. How could it ever have come about that people would have supposed that Elijah was the one who was to come? Well, an interesting bit of conjecture is what it is. It's not found as such in the Bible. But a popular tradition arose that pictured things in this way. There is an account in Second Kings 2 about Elijah being swept up by a fiery chariot. Well, most people would have considered that a kind of a poetic, strong way of saying he was taken from this life. He died. Fine and good. But then, later on, after some passage of time, reflecting that passage of time, there is in Second Chronicles 21 a reference to a letter coming from Elijah to the reigning king. This now is at some later date. So the popular imagery, the popular conclusion to all of this was simply this. Elijah really had not died. That reference to the fiery chariot did not speak of his death. But Elijah was off in the wings somewhere, waiting to be sent by God to usher in the day of the Lord. And that then is how Elijah gets involved in all of this, in this expectation of the people for this great one who was to come from God. Just to document all of this, I'm going to read, first of all, Second Kings 2.11. This is Elijah and his successor, Elisha. As they were going along conversing, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into the heavens. So just exactly what we are to make of this is not clear, but people back then construed this as a reference to his death, his being taken from this life into another existence. Okay, there then is the account of his death, but now listen to Second Chronicles 21.12. So the talk is about a king. He, the king, also made high places in the mountains of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into unfaithfulness and led Judah astray. So this is very much to his discredit that he fosters paganism among the people. Then there came to him a writing from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your ancestor, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into unfaithfulness, as did the house of Ahab, and also have slain your brothers of your father's house, who were better than yourself, now the Lord will strike down with a great plague your people, your children, your wives, and all your property. So this letter suddenly comes to light from Elijah. And those are the deductions then made by the people that therefore Elijah is the one who is to come. A bit of that continues on in the Judaism of today when People will speak of Elijah's coming at some times and at other times of the Messiah's coming. 
and leaving the empty chair at the Seder dinner in case Elijah should be coming. All right, so much for that as a version, an aspect of the one who is to come. But how about the third one, the prophet? That all depends on Deuteronomy 18.15. This mysterious figure spoken of by Moses as coming to usher in the great period known as the Day of the Lord. Instead, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you from among yourselves, one of your fellow countrymen like me. It is he that you must heed. All right. Well, now, the interesting thing about all of this is that this is the picture before the Messiah comes. You have this threefold expectation, tripartite expectation of one who is to come. After Jesus comes, it's interesting to note that his disciples descried in him aspects of each one of the three. Certainly as Messiah, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. Mark makes that very clear. It's clear in the Gospels. So Jesus as Messiah. Then the role of Elijah coming before to prepare the way, that's thought to have been verified in John the Baptist, that he has come to prepare the way for Christ. And then Jesus as the prophet, like unto Moses, he's recognized by his disciples as being just that. Listen to this sermon that Peter gives, found in Acts 3.22. He says this, Yet he must remain in heaven till the time for the universal reformation of which God told in ancient times by the lips of his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up a prophet for you from among your brothers as he raised me up. You must listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone that will not listen to that prophet will be annihilated from among the people. Now, that reference clearly is to Jesus, and it is the reference of the prophet like unto Moses. So that then, I hope, elucidates this threefold interrogation of John the Baptist to ascertain if he is the one who is to come from God in whatever guise as Messiah, prophet, or Elijah. Well, we move from that then to finally something positive that John has to say. He's been denying things right and left all along here, but now he is very straightforward, asked who he was. You see, by the way, you're made to sense almost the uh, exasperation that these questioners felt because they're getting nothing from this man. I'm not sure they hoped, but they probably foresaw that he would say, oh, I am the Messiah, and then they would know where they stood. I don't think I mentioned why they were concerned to know if John the Baptist thought of himself as the Messiah, but the reason probably was this. Messiahs were a dime a dozen, you might say, at that time. Of course, the conception of Messiah that these people had was this military leader. At the time, the Holy Land, Palestine, was under Roman rule, and many people were restive under that rule, foreign rule, and looked forward to deliverance from that foreign domination. 
And they began to think of the role of the Messiah being just that. The Messiah would be the one who would drive the Roman occupiers into the sea. So it was not an uncommon occurrence for somebody to come up from the population and declare himself Messiah, get a raggle-taggle bunch of followers with swords to go down and defeat the Romans. Well, that didn't happen. The Romans were practiced in the arts of war and made quick work of these people. Now, the religious authorities in Jerusalem worried that at some point we're going to exasperate the Romans and they're really going to take action with all these would-be messiahs coming down the pike to unseat Roman rule. So that's why then they were concerned to know if John the Baptist was one of these types that was going to cause a dust-up and annoy the Romans even further. Ironically, that's exactly what happened, that the Romans finally lost patience and in the year 70 just leveled the city of Jerusalem to be rid of all this provocation. But that's the idea behind sending people up to interrogate John the Baptist precisely on this heading as to whether he was the Messiah. Well, anyhow, they got nowhere in that regard, the questioners. So almost in exasperation, they say, well, who are you then? Finally, you know, give us something positive to go on. And almost grudgingly then, John the Baptist speaks of himself, his self-understanding, and what he is there to achieve, and he puts it in that way. I am a voice of one shouting in the desert straight in the Lord's way, as the prophet Isaiah said. It's kind of minimal what he has to say about himself, but we're going to see that's very much in the character of John the Baptist as he is portrayed in the Gospels. Very self-effacing of himself. He's unhappy, uneasy talking about himself. And we're going to notice an interesting contrast. Subsequently, when he begins talking about Christ, he talks volumes about Christ. About himself, he barely ekes out a phrase, and then only as a generality. I am the voice of one crying in the desert, make the Lord's way straight. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, this definition of himself, I am a voice of one shouting, is actually a quote from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, there are these words, a voice of one crying in the desert, make the Lord's way straight. Now, here's something that recently has come, maybe not to the attention of scholars, but they have wondered whether this might not be the way we should read this text. You may have caught the way I read it. I'm a voice of one crying in the desert, make the Lord's way straight. Normally, people have broken that sentence down in this way. I am a voice of one crying in the desert, make the Lord's way straight. Now, the difference in meaning is considerable. In the one instance, the way we have traditionally read that, I am a voice of one crying in the desert, it sort of speaks of the futility of the person who is clamoring for your attention. I'm like a voice in the desert. Well, nobody hears a voice in the desert. That voice dies on the wind. But this other reading is fascinating because it offers a good, rich background of meaning to the words. 
and it would be this. I am a voice crying, and here's what I'm crying out. This is my message. In the desert, make the Lord's way straight. In other words, go out into the desert. That's the command. And there, make the Lord's way straight. That meaning recommends itself to us for very good reasons. One is the conception that the Hebrews had about the desert. And it was this. It was the ideal place for encountering God. Why should that have been? Well, for the best of reasons, first of all, there isn't distraction, not much distraction in the desert, you know. You look out, and there's nothing to catch your eye, no beautiful lake, no majestic surf, no tall mountains, it's just there. So nothing to take your attention away from God. But the other reason, the desert was traditionally conceived of as the place for having proximity to God, was this. In their history, at the time when the Hebrews were escaping from Egypt, it was in the desert that God was so close to them, to the people. And it was a glorious reminiscence for them to think back on that. In those happy times, God was close to us. They felt they knew that that was the case because of the miracles that took place during that period. Fresh water gushes from a rock when the people are about to die of thirst. Food is provided in the form of manna in sufficient quantities for them to survive. These are miracles. It's not normal for this sort of thing to happen in the desert, but it did for them. It helped them survive. So here was their thinking. These were miracles. Only God can perform a miracle. And if God is performing a miracle here in our presence, it means that he must be here to make it happen, to make the miracle happen. So they thought back on those years when their forefathers had marched through the desert as being a time of particular closeness of God to his people. So the desert has that flavor to it, that suggestion that that's where you can best concentrate on God. Of course, we're all familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls and perhaps know a bit about the people who produced them. They were Jews, a very, you might say, orthodox form of Jewry, very serious about the practice of the faith and about serving God. And uh, they read these words in Isaiah and construed them as a mandate to them from God to go out into the desert and there prepare to meet God, as it were, in the next life. Spend the life in the desert, a life of recollection, of meditation, of sharp concentration on God and the things of God to prepare one to meet God eventually. So for that reason, then, scholars are thinking in terms of reading that line found here in that way. I'm a voice of one crying, and then here's what I'm crying out. In the desert, make the Lord's way straight. I might just add in passing that there's a certain ambiguity to all of this. I've spoken about, you might almost say, the very lofty conception of the desert that the Jews had in those days. But they also were aware of the other side of the desert. The desert was a risky place to find oneself. In those days, you know, there weren't state troopers that patrolled any lonely stretch. You, you were on your own. And 
robbers understood this so that many of them just lurked in the deserts to set upon the hapless traveler and uh, take what they could from him. So that was one risk. Another risk was wild animals peopled the deserts in those days. And then, of course, the obvious risk that the desert represents. There's no way of sustaining oneself. Desert, by definition, is a place where nothing grows. So, you know, if you find yourself in the desert without provisions, it's a deadly state of affairs that you're in. So that was one side, but the other side was what we explained before, a kind of a glowing experience, an experience of God, really, that one could have off in the desert. One other comment about uh, this particular quote that John uses to define himself. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the desert. St. Augustine has come up with a very delightful and I think very apposite comment on that. He says, oh, a voice indeed. John the Baptist is a voice. A voice is a very, you might say, tenuous thing. Now you hear it and now you don't. A voice is not constant. Jesus, on the other hand, is spoken of in this gospel as the Word. The Word is different. A word once spoken, you know, can have everlasting impact. So once again, you know, John the Baptist is contrasted with Christ. John the Baptist is weak, transient. Jesus is firm and permanent. Okay. Now the next phrase that I want to comment on is, why are you baptizing? Well, that's a legitimate question. Now these men have come up and they've asked for this man's identification and finally they get some identification from him. What they remember so well, how could they forget, is his firm, absolute, almost perturbed denial that he is the Messiah. Fine. Well, now, in possession of that fact, they're puzzled by what he's doing because they say, well, if you're not the Messiah, why are you baptizing? Because, you see, this was the work that was particular to the Messiah. This is what the Messiah would do, among other things, when he came. He would baptize. And so, very legitimately, these people are left puzzled. Now, you say, on the one hand, you're not the Messiah, and on the other hand, I see you functioning as Messiah. How do you explain that? And there's a very easy explanation. I'm baptizing only in water. When the Messiah comes, he will baptize in water and the Spirit. So that what John the Baptist was doing was disposing the population for the time when the Messiah would come and the genuine baptism could be experienced by them. But this is, as it were, to, so to speak, win converts for the Messiah even before he came so that they could take full advantage of the baptism that he would bring on when in time he came. He says, I am only baptizing in water. Someone is standing among you. This is his second rather broad hint that Jesus the Messiah is nearby. There is someone standing among you of whom you do not know. He is to come after me, and I, I am not worthy to undo his shoe. Well, his point is this. You're encountering me first, but Jesus is before me even. And that, of course, harkens back to what you find as the opening line 
in the introduction, in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word. So Jesus has priority to me. I'm the first one you're encountering, but he precedes me. It's just that you haven't met him yet. See, so that further testimony to Jesus. Then he goes on to say this, I am unworthy to undo the strap of his sandal. Now that has much more impact than we would imagine. This seems curious to be discussing this sort of thing, but this is the background to it all, to this supreme act of humility or expression of humility here on the lips of John the Baptist. And it's this. Back in those times, people had a revulsion of feet and things to do with feet, sandals and that. With good reason, one supposes, after all, in the summertime, people went about unshod, and so their feet were very dusty. In the winter, they would be very muddy. So, as a result, it was kind of a disgusting thing. That's why in the more refined households, when people ate, for example, they would eat reclining with their head resting on their left elbow, on a table raised maybe just six inches or so above the ground and eat with their right hand, but with their feet away from the table and the food because, again, feet were disgusting. To show how far they carried this, when a person came on a visit to a well-to-do home, a home of people of substance, that person would be refreshed by having his feet washed. One of the slaves would be called to wash the feet of the guest. And you can picture that, you know, putting one's feet in cool water is uh, very exhilarating. But it was a dirty task, and that's why you could not ask a Jewish slave to do that work. You would have to ask a Gentile slave. It was too degrading for a Jewish slave to do that task. Okay, that was one example of how they felt about this matter. Another was this, that a teacher in those times could ask any favor at all of any of his students, could ask him to, you know, get him a glass of water or bring him another scroll or do this or do that. But one thing he could not ask his student would be, carry my sandals. That was considered simply too dirty a thing to ask of anybody. Well, against that background then, hear these words of John the Baptist saying, this most menial of tasks, namely to unlatch the strap of his sandal, even that I am unworthy to do. And just as an aside, against the background of what we've said about people's thinking and feeling about feet and shoes. Think of the washing of the feet that Jesus engaged in during Holy Week and as recounted in this very gospel. And now we come to the very last comment that we're going to make in this segment that we have under careful scrutiny. And it has to do with the word Bethany. There are, it would seem, in the Bible account, the New Testament, two Bethanies. One was a suburb and still is, in fact, a suburb of Jerusalem, just a very short distance to the southwest of Jerusalem. That's the Bethany where Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. 
a town that Jesus often visited because these were close friends of his. And that town has survived down to the present. Don't hesitate to go off on a little digression here about the present day name of that little town. It's no longer called Bethany, but it's called El Azaria, which is Arabic for Lazarus. The memory of Lazarus as having lived in that spot centuries ago has endured all these years. We don't often realize that that whole area at one time was solidly Christian. In the 7th century when the Arabians came, they spread by force in many instances the Muslim faith so that now the Muslims throughout that whole area and the Christians are just a bare minority in that area. But the memory of the Christians about this place being the home of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has taken hold, and the old name of Bethany has been discarded, and now they know it by Lazarus. All right, that's just off to the side. But to get back to the Bethany that is spoken of here, it's Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's therefore some distance at some remove from Jerusalem. And we have not found the foundations of that town at all. So we just have this note that it was on the other side of the Jordan. One further thing to be said about it that's interesting, and that is that, interestingly, the etymology of the word bears on what has happened here. The word is composed of two Hebrew words, bet hananiah, bet house, hananiah, testimony. So the house, the place of testimony. So one of these odd coincidences that here is John the Baptist doing nothing if not giving testimony, testimony to Christ, and this all happens in a place called the place of testimony. Fine. Well, we have finished the first of these pericopes that we want to examine in the gospel. We'll go on now to what follows right after that. And notice that I have alerted you to the fact that all this is progressing in terms of days, successive days. This happened on the first day. And you're going to see a regular buildup. I mentioned to you earlier that this is one of the values of discussing something in terms of days. You see the development, the growth of a particular happening. Well, we're going to see that now. Thus far, what we have from John the Baptist is denial. You know, I am not the Messiah. Well, that serves to clear the decks for action. Because having said, who is not the Messiah, the very next day, we are told who is the Messiah. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, there is God's Lamb, who is to remove the world's sin. This is the man of whom I spoke when I said, After me there is coming a man who is even now ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but it is in order that he may be made known to Israel that I have come and baptized people in water. And John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
The one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who is to baptize in the Holy Spirit. I did see it, and I testify that he is the Son of God. All right. Well, here it is then, all that anyone would have hoped for as far as who is and who isn't the Messiah. Now, there's a fascinating way that John the Baptist has of making this identification. He says, look, there is God's Lamb. That really is a formula that we really ought to be quite aware of. The formula works this way. It derives from the Old Testament, where it goes along these lines. Someone sees... That's the first thing, seeing. Someone says, that's the second. And then the third member of this combination, this formula, is look or behold or lo. So sees, says, look. When you have that, the name that follows indicates someone who has a very special role to play in salvation history. That's what we note from the Old Testament. Someone is pointed out, and then something is said, and what is said always has that now archaic word, lo, behold, there is so-and-so. So that before we get any deeper into this examination, we have to note that this formula is identifying Jesus as having a special role to play in salvation history. I'd like to go and show you just one instance of this in function back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 9.17. Now, you know the three indications that you have to be on the lookout for. Seeing, saying, and lo. Thus, when Samuel saw, there's the first one, Saul, the Lord said, there's the second, to him, behold, there's the third, lo, the man of whom I spoke to you. So, all right then, in this subtle way, but uh, quite unmistakably and quite firmly, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. Now there comes up before us the task of probing that phrase, Lamb of God. Of course, we grow up familiar with it because of its use in the liturgy and the other number of references to Jesus as Lamb of God. But what are we to take from this? What, what meaning are we to find here? Some people have suggested that a Lamb of God is a reference to the suffering servant that is spoken of in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 7. The suffering servant is a kind of a prefigurement of the Messiah. The Messiah is pictured in terms of the suffering servant. And uh, here's what's said of him in 53, 7. When he was oppressed, he humbled himself and opened not his mouth. And here's what makes people think of this text here where we're finding it in John. Like a sheep that is led to the slaughter or like a ewe that is dumb before her shearers, he opened not his mouth. All right. 
So then that's one possibility that John the Baptist then, in using these words, this particular formula, is suggesting that Jesus is that suffering servant figure that people are primed to know and to expect from reading Isaiah. A further reason for thinking that this may be the meaning of uh, Lamb of God is that there are several texts in this part of John's Gospel that derive from that same part of Isaiah's work, so that this would fall right in line with that. All right, but so much for that. Another possibility, though, another possible interpretation of Lamb of God is to see in it a reference to the Paschal Lamb, because the Paschal Lamb is what saved the Hebrews. Back at the time, just prior to the Exodus, the Hebrews were instructed to take this Paschal Lamb and to slaughter it as a sacrifice and consume it, but they were to take the blood of this lamb, put it on the doorposts of the house, and any house so marked would be spared. So, you see, it was the blood of the lamb that saved. Well, immediately, of course, we make this connection, because this is one of our understandings, one of the truths that we accept and live by, that Jesus saves. So that that seems to be the equation then, Lamb of God equals Paschal Lamb. Also, in this particular part of John's Gospel, there is a strong Passover symbolism. There were several broad references to the Passover in this Gospel. So, for example, when this Gospel is talking about the suffering and death of Jesus, it makes a very interesting little allusion. It speaks about hyssop that Jesus is hanging on the cross. One of the soldiers takes pity on him, takes a stem of hyssop, puts a sponge on it, dips it in sour wine, and holds it to the lips of Jesus. Now, what is fascinating for us is that word hyssop. It's a rare word. It was rare in those days as it is today. You know, has anyone ever in normal course of life heard that word used? Well, it was unusual even at the time when the gospel was written. And yet... That word is used, and what it does is it calls to mind the Passover lamb. Because when the instructions are given for the way the Passover lamb is to be slaughtered and how its blood is to be sprinkled on the doorposts, it speaks of dipping hyssop into the blood of the lamb and then sprinkling the doorposts, the lintels of the door, with that. So you see what I'm suggesting, that this reference to the Lamb of God would fall right into place, right in line with other Passover references that you have right here. All right, so that's the second possibility. See, what we have confronting us now is a range of possibilities. John has said, look, there is God's Lamb. Now, we want to be clear in our minds what he means by that. And we can suggest thus far that it's either the suffering servant or Paschal Lamb, but there are still further possibilities. For instance, Jeremiah makes reference, it's actually to himself, as a lamb. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. 
But I was like an innocent lamb that is led to the slaughter. I knew not that they had plotted against me, saying, but I was like an innocent lamb led to the slaughter. Well, what makes that seem to be a possibility for construing this expression, Lamb of God, is innocent. See, so is Jesus, innocent. He wasn't put to death for, uh, you know, killing somebody. He wasn't put to death for stealing. He was innocent. He went to death an innocent person. So then this is a real possibility. So we have this now. Jesus could be seen as the suffering servant. It could be seen as the Paschal Lamb with very good reason because what the Paschal Lamb did was to save, spare the lives of those people. Jesus has come to save all of humanity. So that's a very logical link-up and possibility. Now we've seen a third. There's still others that we have to look at. In Exodus, it speaks about the lambs that are to be offered every single day for the people. These lambs are sacrificed and offered, one at daybreak and the other at twilight, for the benefit of the people every single day. Let's look at the way they're spoken of in Exodus 29:38. This is what you are to offer on the altar. Two yearling lambs regularly each day, offering one lamb in the morning and the other lamb at twilight. And with the former lamb, a tenth of a measure of fine meal mixed with a fourth of a measure of oil from crushed olives and a libation of a fourth of a measure of wine and the other lamb you must offer at twilight as a soothing odor, a sacrifice to the Lord, accompanying it with the same cereal offering and libation as the offering in the morning. A regular burnt offering to be made by you throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak to you there. All right. So here then is another possibility. You see, these lambs are to be offered twice a day with this intent, with this thrust in behalf of the people. Well, that forces us to think of Jesus because his whole passion and death experience is in behalf of the people. So there's the connecting point between the two. Well, there are other possibilities that we have to consider, factor in, before we try to reach a conclusion. But be interesting to see what you think will be the final judgment to be made on all of this. But we're going to finish at this point and leave you in suspense. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.